big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays all around. Before we begin today, I do want to acknowledge that I am recording this standing in the closet of my childhood bedroom. So please forgive any sound quality funkiness. Now, I want to thank our patron, Rona, for upgrading their pledge over on Patreon and remind you all that being that it is the holiday season, if you're feeling in the giving mood, you can head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice to see how you can support us. Or you can just keep listening to the podcast because we really appreciate you all so much for listening and sharing and showing your support that way. We love you. Happy holidays. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering the first half of the 1995 classic Clueless with our guest, Kelly Schubert. All right. Are we ready to, to talk about some Clueless ladies or one Clueless lady? I think so. Are you ready, Kelly? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Let's do this. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to sort of talk about Emma! In a really 90s way. Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many a Jane Austen book, watched many a Jane Austen movie, and have watched Clueless since I was a very small child. And I, Molly, am doing all of that for the first time in this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast, respectively. But that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are, as you may have guessed, talking about the esteemed Clueless. And we are joined today by Kelly Schubert. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? Hi, good. How are you guys? We're so excited. So excited. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank uh, you. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit of your podcasting history? Oh, my podcasting <laughs> history is very intertwined with the podcasting history of Mike Schubert, my husband. Uh, so I have mainly just been involved in some of his podcasts, guesting on them, or I like to say I'm I'm involved in some of the pre and post production bits, but really I just show up sometimes to talk with my husband about books that we like. So <laughs> that's my podcasting history. And we have had Mike, your husband, on this podcast mm -hmm. a couple times now. He's a great friend of the pod. And we heard through the grapevine that you were a big fan of Jane Austen, specifically Pride and Prejudice. And we were like, oh, it might be time to have Kelly on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mike may have oversold my Jane Austen knowledge, but <laughs> I am a big fan of a lot of Jane Austen things and of Pride and Prejudice specifically. Well, let's get into the brass tacks of this. Uh, and by the brass tacks, I mean the usual questions we ask all of our guests, starting with what is your relationship to Jane Austen? I grew up mainly watching the movies, uh, movie adaptations of Jane Austen books. I didn't actually read my first Jane Austen book until 
long dramatic pause because I can't <laughs> remember. I think it was like 2019 that it was the first time that I actually realized I hadn't ever read Pride and Prejudice. I just knew all of the adaptations so well that it felt like I had read it. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that I had read Pride and Prejudice. Loved it. Have read it many times since then. And other Pride and Prejudice content such as Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and things of that nature. But I haven't read most of her other works. I have seen a number of adaptations. I've read a lot of cliff notes. Uh, <laughs> I completely forgot about the fact that Clueless was an adaptation of <laughs> Emma, just because it's so 90s. It's so 90s. But that is kind of my background with Jane Austen. Yes. I mean, we on this podcast are a fan of the idea that if you enjoy Austin content in any form, you are an Austin fan. So you're in the fan club. You're in the fan base. <laughs> Excellent. And on that note, speaking of, what is your favorite Austin content? And we say this can be anything. It can be one of the books. It can be a movie adaptation. It can be a song lyric. Uh, whatever speaks to you most. I specifically like Pride and Prejudice related Austin content. But my very favorite thing is a game called Marrying Mr. Darcy. I don't know if you guys have talked about it a whole lot and if I'm just giving knowledge that everybody already knows, but it is an incredible game and I love to play it. Yeah, we actually haven't played it. We have. <gasps> oh uh, my goodness. Yeah, we've heard of it. They've sponsored an episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. We haven't actually gotten our hands on the game to play it. So that is something that is on our list. Oh my goodness. It is so much fun. And we have some house rules that you specifically speak in a British accent exclusively while oh, playing the game. And there are certain cards that you have to uh, pronounce them in a certain way. These are all just the house rules, which make it a whole lot more fun. But it is a hilariously fun, quick, lighthearted, but like still fun game to play. It is really wonderful. You guys should give it a play at some point. I have not played this game either. It is, for spoilers for our listeners, on the radar of something that will probably be covered relatively soon on this podcast. Amazing. I don't want to say promise too soon, but um, I have a group of friends who've played this game a lot. And one of the group of friends had never read Pride and Prejudice and was playing and was playing as Lydia. And according to them <laughs> through the game, just started getting more and more into the character of Lydia without realizing it. <laughs> Some of the Pride and Prejudice characters in the game have some of the best power-ups, but aren't the best book characters. So like Kitty and Lydia have some of the best power-ups in the game and they're fun to play as, even though you're just like, I don't want to be Kitty, but I kind of want to be Kitty in this instance. <laughs> so it's they have some great power-ups in the game. I love that. Justice for Kitty. Exactly. Justice for Kitty. <laughs> Very much maligned in the in the original book. So question number three is, which Austin character do you relate to the most? So I actually had to take to the internet to answer this for me. As I said, I haven't read all of the books, and so I'm not as familiar with all of the heroines in the Austin universe. Mm -hmm. So I took some quizzes online to find <laughs> out which character I am most like. And I got Eleanor Dashwood as my person, which Sense and Sensibility is not one of the ones that I'm most familiar with. I've seen a movie adaptation of it. I have not read the books and I it's been at least a decade or more since I've seen it. But my snippet that it gave me as to why I'm like Eleanor Dashwood, it says, you are composed but affectionate. Your strong sense of responsibility is only equal to your compassionate heart. You're exactly the kind of friend that everyone wants. I thought that's a very nice way to describe me. 
Sure. I'll be Eleanor Dashwood. That's amazing. I love that. I've always wanted to relate to someone like Eleanor Dashwood, but I am unfortunately just not that person. The first time I took the quiz, actually, it told me that I was Elizabeth Bennett. And I was like, all right, I'm not Elizabeth Bennett. I know (laughs) this about myself. If I'm one of the Bennett's, I'm not Elizabeth. So I took it a second time. So which of the Bennett's are you if you're one of the Bennett's, though? I would say I was I'd be most like Jane. I think she's a much more relatable character. That is how I know Eleanor Dashwood is correct for you, because they both have practical, introverted older sister energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those two characters are two in my like wheelhouse of like top relates as well. So (laughs) it's a good pick for you. Excellent. Even though I'm not the older sister, I do some I I am a older sister, but I'm actually the middle sister. So I'm not the oldest sister. Also me. (laughs) (laughs) Right in that wheelhouse as well. You have older sister energy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Just just everyone's older sister by accident. (laughs) So uh, last question to ask, and there's, I promise this is a no pressure one. What is your hottest Austin take? And this can be anything. One example we use a lot is that we think Lydia Bennett is a misunderstood tragic heroine Mm -hmm. and that her story is actually very sad. That's a great one. I also didn't know what my hot take would be. I was talking to Mike about it. He was like, oh my gosh, well, do you think that the Kiara Knightley adaptation is the best Pride and Prejudice adaptation? I was like, yeah. He's like, that's a hot take because it's not true. (laughs) And then we got into a very big discussion about that. So I suppose that's my hot take. It might only be hot to him, but that's my that's my hot take. It's hot to a lot of people. I think that it is good casting. I adore the music. I listen to the soundtrack all the time. I find it very soothing. I find the landscaping shots really beautiful. It's one of the movies I consistently have downloaded to my phone so that I can either watch it on a plane or sleep to it on a plane because it is, I think, relaxing and exciting. And that's a very interesting dichotomy in a movie. So it is my favorite adaptation. And I think that could be controversial. It's controversial. It's not rare necessarily, Mm. which is good. So like there's like two schools of thought. The easiest comp I can give here is how like I guess the Harry Potter fandom feels about Ron Weasley, Mm. which is like half the fans really love him and half the fans really hate him. Uh, We are 2005 lovers on this podcast and also think that uh, it's it's a very comforting watch. And I will say that no matter how everyone feels about the movie, it is definitely like the soundtrack that everyone agrees is amazing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I guess it's a lukewarm take, but that's my that's my take. It's funny because I was on Instagram today and someone just sent us a reel of someone saying that and that was like their hot take. And they were like, they were like, everyone who says that the 1995 is the best can sit down. And they sent us this reel and they were like, is this a hot take or is this like like what does this mean? Like and I'm like, well, you know, on our podcast, we believe that everyone should just love what you love and that liking any Jane Austen content is amazing and that mm-hmm. we should all be friends. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it is a hot take in the world of Austen. But on this podcast, we support all content. Excellent. We do support all Jane Austen content. I We only 50% support the Gwyneth Paltrow adaptation of Emma, but that's only me. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is one that I don't return to as an adaptation that I like to rewatch. I recently saw the newer, I don't think it's that new, actually, the newer adaptation of Persuasion that's on Netflix. 
I didn't know that there was a newer adaptation of it. And I watched that recently and just loved it. Oh, good. But, you know, some people love the adaptations and some people, you know, like the older ones. The one thing I'll say before we we dive right into what is adaptation, um, very loose adaptation, um, (laughs) is that when it comes to Jane Austen, some people, when they watch an adaptation, they want like straightforward just the book. Mm-hmm. And that's why the miniseries are so good because they always go like straight for exactly the book. And then if you want the story in a more like two hours streamlined version, then most Jane Austen books have lovely movie adaptations that are great to watch. And so it just depends on what you want in the moment. Yeah. I need some uh, holiday adaptations, some some Christmas versions of Austen books i think there's a christmas Pemberley somewhere i don't know where excellent <laughs> yeah i don't know where you guys are based but the ripped bodice in brooklyn is a romance bookstore that has basically every jane austen adaptation you could possibly hope for and more and they have like a specific holiday section and i'm sure you could find a jane austen holiday novel there wonderful oh i've heard of this bookstore actually it's like on my list of places i want to go check out i go probably far too often because of the (laughs) amount of space i have on my bookshelves which is none at this point none yeah yeah so speaking of adaptation we are about to cover what is one of the most famous jane austen adaptations out there so famous in fact that most people don't know that it is an adaptation of a Jane Austen novel, and that is Clueless, written and directed by Amy Heckerling, starring Alicia Silverstone. Guys, this is Molly's first watch of Clueless. Kelly, what's your experience (laughs) of the movie Clueless? My experience with Clueless, I watched it as, when did it come out? 1995. 1995. So, okay. It came out when I was young, too young to be watching it. So I watched it (laughs) A couple years after it came out, um, I suppose, because I, I have distinct memories of watching it with one of my best friends growing up and she loved it. She loved it so much. And I loved that she loved it. And I remember thinking, this is fine. I don't really know how much I'm enjoying some of these scenes, but I do remember her really loving it. We were probably like, or 12 when we were watching it and she really really enjoyed it and so we would watch it multiple times while we were at her house and that is kind of my history with the movie this is the first time that I've re-watched it since the 90s 2000s when I first watched it and I have thoughts <laughs> oh there's so much to say about this movie oh my um, gosh <laughs> I, I will disclose that this movie was also on my list of like watched a lot as a young kid And did not realize it was a Jane Austen novel when I first watched it. And then when I watched it later, like when I watched the 96 Emma later, I was like, oh, this is Clueless. And then by the time I read the book, I was like, oh, Clueless is a pretty accurate (laughs) adaptation of Emma. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, yes. And Molly, let's let's get your initial thoughts before we dive right in. It's just Kelly, I think you said it's so 90s. It is so 90s. Like. I felt like it was 90s on steroids. It's also so campy. Um, I don't know. There's like the question of what is camp, right? But I think that this movie could be considered camp. And also I loved it (laughs) so much. Well, this movie is, uh, it goes by another sort of aesthetic, I think. And that is really, really, really heightened satire. 
It is a huge satire of Beverly Hills, California, and that class. And I think that's why it works as an adaptation of Emma so well, because Emma is a satire of a girl living in an incredibly sheltered, wealthy life amongst the British aristocracy. Mm-hmm. And there are elements of this movie that I question and elements of this movie that haven't aged well. But I think that like saturated aesthetic and particularly Alicia Silverstone's performance as Cher, a.k.a. Emma, in the main role are two elements that have aged very well and really do capture the essence of what Emma the character is from the novel, which is ignorant, sheltered, but clever and good hearted. Yes, I think she captures that very, very well. Yes, yes. So uh, back in July of 2020, the ringer.com posted an article titled Clueless is still the best Jane Austen adaptation, basically making the argument that for a modern audience, Clueless is the vehicle for which one can understand Jane Austen's world. And I just wanted to read a quick quote from it before we do some deep dive. Austen's second life in American popular culture feels both inevitable and unexpected given the likability of Emma's main character. Austen is, for one, an undeniable cultural giant, queen of the British literary tradition, and perhaps the queen of all that a great, and I mean truly great, English novel can do. The efficiency and wit of Austen's literary voice helped invent and perfect a kind of close third-person narration that clueless streamlines in Silverstone's perfectly pitched voiceover. The brilliance of Heckerling's adaptation is its flair for analogy, not just between Emma and Clueless, but between Cher's contained universe and everything else. Cher's inability to read the world beyond her narrow set of cultural references reflects the narcissism of the book's main character. As Austen's novel famously begins, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. I just wanted to share that little tidbit from someone who was much more articulate than me. <laughs> that would be Jane Hugh, by the way. So I love that. It is She really just captures who Emma is, but in a way that's tailored to the modern mind. In a very 90s vibe. In a very 90s vibe. So not necessarily a <laughs> modern mind, but a 90s mind. Yeah. Well, it, it was modern at the time. Mm-hmm. It's now... 18 years ago? No, no, 28 years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, Molly, are we ready to synopsize? We are ready to synopsize. So the movie starts with Kids in America playing, but if you don't know the song, it just sounds pretty ominous. Like, when it's coming in, I was like, am I watching the wrong movie? Because the, <laughs> the music is just a little discordant. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I know the song. And we get a Cher Horowitz is very cool montage and her voiceover saying, I know what you're thinking. Is this a Noxima commercial or what? Um, Noxima being a skincare brand, which I had to Google. <laughs> but no, she just has a regular normal life. She's just like any other kid. She picks out her everyday clothes on a touchscreen 90s desktop computer. Now, if you were around in the 90s, which most of our listeners were, you know these computers are it's like the big box computers and definitely did not have touch screens. So this was a movie ahead of its time. That is probably my favorite bit from the movie is that clothes picking AI that she's got <laughs> essentially. 
And the fact that she needs it to scroll through to pick out a matching plaid outfit for her (laughs) and show her how it will look on herself. I, first of all, thought it was the coolest thing as a kid if I could just have AI picking out my outfits. But at the same time, I thought I could have probably picked that outfit myself. (laughs) Yeah, as it came in a matching set. Yes, it's a matching set. I think it's funny because later on she says she doesn't rely on mirrors, but she does rely on this. Yes. <laughs> a much more expensive piece of technology. <laughs> She's a woman of the future. I mean, Polaroids are also very expensive if you take one for every time you look in a mirror. <laughs> yeah. So we find out that her dad is a litigator and they are super duper rich. And she comes downstairs down their like beautiful staircase into this beautiful kitchen and she's trying to get her dad to drink his orange juice for vitamin C and reminds him the doctor is coming over and so he better not sneak out and he says oh and Josh is coming for dinner and she says why and he says because he's your stepbrother record scratch for everybody <laughs> let's all just take a breath um it's just so i'm going to talk about it a lot i'm sure but there are so many options for the relationship that they could have Uh, They could have simply taken the one from the book, which is that uh, he is her sister's husband's brother. So they're in-laws, but like once removed. And it's kind of weird, but it's not so weird. Mm -hmm. They could have been next door neighbors. They could have been like her dad could have had a law partner and that could have been his son. Family friends. They didn't have to be (laughs) step-siblings. I did appreciate The explanation that they gave afterward, which is that they were barely married and it was five years ago. And it's the one sweet thing that the dad then says in the entire movie, (laughs) which is you divorce wives, you don't divorce children, which I was like, that's actually very kind of you. But were you married to this woman for like, it sounds to me that he was married to this woman for about a month. And therefore, this is now his son. So very weird, but they also then tried to back out of it as quickly as possible. Uh, should have been a different relationship. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they were only married for a little while is mildly better, but also something that is so important to their relationship in the book. And again, I know this is an adaptation and they're not going to be able to put everything in, especially because it's a different movie. Um, But something that's really important is that they've known each other since they were very, very young. Mm. So it does a little bit shortchange that relationship as much as I think that these two have amazing chemistry and they're both so hot and fun. Mm. I wish they had known each other a little longer. They do have the rapport of feeling like they have known each other for a very long time. A little too close, which we'll get to in my least favorite part of the movie very quickly. But they do have that energy of having known each other for a long time, even though the marriage was five years ago and very short. No, no. Yeah. My issue is really like, so so since we started this podcast, Molly's been like, do they have to marry their cousins? Do they have to marry their in-laws? And I'm like, it could be weirder. Um, <laughs> wait till we get to the 90s. Um, and I guess I think they, they do a lot to justify why it's okay that that she's going to fall for her step-sibling because it is obvious from, like, this moment of the film that they're going to fall for for each other. But it's like they wrote themselves into a corner they didn't need to write themselves into mm-hmm. for, for no reason because it's not like they're justifying, like, a relationship in the book that was like that because 
they have a more appropriate relationship in the book. That being said, this is there's like long documented things of me on this podcast being like, I love Clueless, except one glaring caveat, which is um, why are they siblings? But um, <laughs> yes, I, we'll harp on it like 8000 yeah, more times sure. during this movie. Um, but I do agree that, you know, if you pull out the fact that they're technically step siblings or ex step siblings and you just kind of look at them as family friends and he's like under her dad's wing, mm-hmm. it becomes a very charged, fun rapport. As a kid, that's how I looked at it. As a, <laughs> I didn't think too hard about it. That's how I interpreted it as a kid. I was going to ask for you two, having watched this without knowing that it was based on Emma, did you, watching it for the first time, think at this point, having been introduced to her stepbrother, that she's going to fall in love with him? I think so. I think even though Paul Rudd wasn't Paul Rudd yet, we were just like, oh, that's the main guy right there. I think, at least for me, it was fairly obvious as a 10-year-old or whatever watching this <laughs> that that was going to be the love interest. Absolutely. I agree. I don't I don't remember. I think maybe it was just one of those things where I always knew who the love interest was or mm. it was on the back of the DVD, his face a billion times or something. Probably. But I definitely think that... Um, if you watch the movie, it feels somewhat inevitable that she is going to kiss her brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, then we see Cher in her very cool Jeep driving or quote unquote driving. She can't really drive. And she goes to pick up her friend Dion. W- one of my favorite quotes is, Dion and I were both named after great singers of the past who now do infomercials. <laughs> and she goes, we're best friends because we both know what it's like to have people be jealous of us. <laughs> yes. Everyone in this movie is incredibly rich. They all live in castles. Mm-hmm. And Dion gets in the car and they're driving to school. And Cher blows through a stop sign. And I think this is an important line because I've had people just like say it at me after I told them I was watching Clueless. But Dion's like, hello, that was a stop sign. And Cher's like, I totally paused. Except she did it. She did not pause at all. Oh, not at all. <laughs> I love the driving through the film as sort of a um, it is a perfect way to show us how um, delusional Cher is the entire time because you cannot deny that she's just like, blatantly a menace on the road but the entire time she's living this easy breezy beautiful life in her gorgeous jeep that her daddy bought for her to practice on where she like doesn't have a licensed driver next to her in the car so like it is a great way to show like oh yeah her world doesn't actually exist Mm -hmm. she just lives in it anyway yes so they get to school and Dion is complaining about her boyfriend, Murray, and how he's like paging her and why is he being so annoying. And then we meet Murray, who is played by uh, Donald Faison uh, from Scrubs. I have to say, like, on one hand, I absolutely love Donald Faison. I think he is so funny. I have had a crush on him forever from this movie and from Scrubs. And I love Dion and uh, Murray as sort of the... John and Isabel of the story. Oh, sure. But also the the Tina Turner joke is a little rough. <laughs> a lot rough. There are a lot of things in this movie that did not age well. And I'll say a lot of them did not make it into my notes because I was like, maybe we'll just skim over them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we can just acknowledge that this movie was made in a time when there was certain edgy humor and certain stereotyping that we can now look back at and think, Mm, this is really not ideal. 
But I think at the same time, from the perspective of like this movie being too clever for its own good, it, it kind of like pulls that those edgy humor bits in which kind of soured a pot of what is otherwise a very like well-aged movie Mm -hmm. if that makes sense i agree there's definitely a lot of points in this movie where i cringed because of the language that they use but i don't even think the language was them trying to be edgy i think that's just the way that some people acted in the 90s and thought that they were cool by saying some of the words that they use acting some of the ways that they did stereotyping the way that they did was cool in the 90s and we all look back on the 90s now in a way is that wasn't cool and there was a lot of things going on that should not have been going on and language was important and the way that we treated and looked at people was important but the 90s just didn't do it yeah absolutely hello it's molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning pot and prejudice guest vanessa zoltan is a podcast that treats romance as sacred You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So... Cher walks away from Murray and Dion's argument and her voiceover starts talking again about how high school boys are such dogs. And one of them comes over and is like, quote unquote, slobbering on her. And she pushes him away and she goes, as if. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this being one of the things that made me really uncomfortable about this movie. The first time I watched it as a kid, the way that boys treat her and women in general made me incredibly uncomfortable which maybe there's a parallel between that and 1800s Austin world but it just made me feel incredibly uncomfortable the number of people who would come up and kiss her on the cheek or hug her like they were like had that kind of relationship it just made me feel so uncomfortable with the way that men would treat her specifically. Mm. Yeah, I mean, specifically Elton, who can be seen at various points throughout the movie before he actually 
attacks her, um, mm-hmm. putting his arm around her, kissing her on the cheek after she does something good in class. Like, it's so gross that I visibly went, Ugh, yeah, when he did it. And it's not just Elton who we see later escalates his kind of sexual yeah. harassment of her. It's all of the guys. It's random yeah. guys in her debate class. It's random people walking by that feel like they can get in her personal space. I just remember being so massively uncomfortable with that, that that was the main reason I didn't like this movie. Oh, that's interesting. I think um, the way I read it is um, with Elton, it's certainly like a translation of like sleaze from book to screen Mm -hmm. uh, because he is sleazy in the book, like in a crazy way. And I think with the other showings, I think think it's an interesting point because I think it's it's a combo of a couple things one I think you're right I think there is something really gross to how the guys treat Cher in the movie and you know some of the other girls too like Ty for example yeah and we'll get to Ty um but I think also Emma is such a self-assured woman in a man's world because she has the privilege to be that and I think there is a maybe I'm giving too much credit to Heckerling and her direction but I think there is a way in which the grossness of the underlings around Emma and the sleaziness of them, her ability to keep her own self-assurance and her protect herself in those situations as sort of a um, show of her like, I will never marry being like, I will not date high school boys no matter how gross they are because I don't need to mm-hmm. like gathering that energy up mm-hmm. in it. But I, I take your point. I do think there are moments where it's gross, but I also think the movie is also going for like a satirized, gross, touchy-feely high school thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know. And that could be now, you know, knowing it is an Emma adaptation, which I didn't know as a kid. <laughs> it does feel like the way men treated women in the 1800s as objects that they could use or not use or discard in the way that they wanted to. And that is kind of how the boys try to use her and like you said she's so self-assured and confident she doesn't allow herself to be used yeah i hope it was a characteristic stylistic choice and not just this is what boys are like in the 90s because that was what (laughs) terrified me was oh my gosh i men are scary men are scary men are very scary (laughs) one man who's not scary is wallace sean who teaches their debate class and is perfect. I love him so much. He's inconceivably wonderful. (laughs) I see what you did there. So Cher is doing a debate. Uh, She takes her gum out, puts it on her finger, and holds it up throughout the entire debate, which is iconic. Um, And she gives this speech about how, uh, quote-unquote, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. And therefore, the Haitians or the Haitians, should be able to come to America. So if the government could just go to the kitchen, rearrange some things, there'd be plenty to eat at the table. (laughs) Honestly, like, it may be unresearched, but it's not a bad argument. No, we can say it. Share for president. I think it's a great example of her living in her sheltered world, but having a very compassionate and good head on her shoulders at the same time as being completely out of touch with everything yeah absolutely and everyone cheers for her they're like yeah we should we should open like knock down the borders everyone's there (laughs) for it and her opponent amber says she can't 
argue with that. She didn't even do the assignment. She's just talking about some silly birthday party. And she goes, um, hello, it was a 50th birthday. I just heard the her intonations are phenomenal. And I'm going to try not to quote everything she says, but I might. Yeah. Well, for me, it's when Amber shoots back the whatever and makes the W with her hands. That like lived in my brain as a child. I just go whatever and hold up my little W. <laughs> so Mr. Hall, while Sean asks if anyone has any insights about what Cher has said and uh, someone who we learn is Travis says, yeah, I have some insights. The way I feel about the Rolling Stones is the way my kids are going to feel about Nine Inch Nails, so I shouldn't torment my mom anymore. And Wallace Shawn says, well, tolerance is always a good lesson. <laughs> <laughs> it's just beautiful. And all of the, the references are so 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then they get their report cards passed out and Travis tries to jump out the window I think it's important to note that he tries to jump out of a first floor window. <laughs> so <laughs> you see like bushes outside <laughs> at eye level and the the teacher says, let's let's cool it on the suicide attempts until next period. And I'm like, kid wouldn't even break his ankle jumping out of the first floor window. Yeah, I, I read that as like a bit that Travis is doing because <laughs> yes. like the kid doesn't really care about his grades and like everyone's laughing and like you get the sense that he is this. So Travis Birkenstock, who is iconically named Travis Birkenstock, <laughs> is like clearly set up as the class clown who's just trying to make everyone laugh and like is very high the entire time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Um, When I was in eighth grade on the last day of school, my whole class was like, we want to jump out a window, like just for fun, like not to injure ourselves. We were like, we want to see if we could jump from like the second floor. And the teachers were like, we will escort you to this room on the first floor and you can all have your fun and jump out the window. And we all jumped out the window into a courtyard. Was anybody wondering if Molly was cool in middle school? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very cool thing to do. Well, if all of your friends jump out a first floor window, will you do it too? Apparently. Apparently. So Cher got a C and she is like, oh, no, my dad's going to kill me. She goes home and there's this giant portrait of her mom in the entry hall who we learned died when she was a baby during a routine liposuction operation. I also want to note the line, isn't my house classic? It was built all the way back in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> the columns date all the way back to the 70s. And it's just one of those like moments. Th this is what I mean. Again, it's like clear Jane Austen, Amy Heckerling is making class commentary about uh, California's elite, if you will. And it goes further. Like, wasn't my mama Betty? She died when I was just a baby. Freak accident with liposuction. <laughs> yeah. So she's in her room and she hears what she calls crybaby music. And she goes downstairs to find Josh in the kitchen, obviously played by Paul Rudd. And he, I wanted to note, calls her dad, dad, but we won't harp on it too much. And he's drinking orange juice straight from the carton, which is very cool. Can we also just really quickly acknowledge Paul Rudd in this movie 28 years ago? They really, they're correct. He doesn't age. No, he's a vampire. <laughs> My gosh, that was 20. He looks maybe 10 years older maximum now. He does not age. Yeah. Well, the Mean Girls, the new Mean Girls trailers and everything have come out. And Tina Fey also looks exactly the same as she did in the original Mean Girls. I have not seen the trailers. I have to watch that. She's just 
doesn't age. But remember, everybody, when you have a lot of money, you can afford to look the same. And we shouldn't put that past Paul Rudd either. Like he is in Hollywood and he probably does a lot to upkeep his appearance. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not I'm not saying this is reachable for anyone. I'm just saying it is particularly notable that Paul Rudd seems immortal. Um, (laughs) Maybe it's the fact that he has those piercing blue eyes and you just can't age out of them. Yeah, he's beautiful. So they go to dinner and Cher is notably eating asparagus with her fingers and she (laughs) tells her dad. We skipped over my least favorite part of the movie here where he's drinking the orange juice out of the bottle and she's got her back to him and he like turns her around and goes, wow, you're really filling out. Uh, And I just (laughs) such ick. She like has to slap his hand away from groping her. They immediately establish that he is not a brother to her. He is creepy, too close relationship to her. It is the one thing about him in this movie that I really didn't like. It was just major, major ick to me. I hated that. Hated it so much. I also despised it. It was so bad. <laughs> I would put that in like top five bad moments in this oh, movie. So it's like they want to establish that they're bickery, but you, you can't. First of all, being bickery with an insult to someone's appearance in a very 90s fat phobic way, never cool. And also bickery in a sort of like grabbing way. Like if that's your kid sister and you're a little kid, like and it's like a grab in like a like a tousle kind of way, like that's fine. But grabbing as adults when you're not siblings in that area. Mm-mm. I took it more as he was saying she had grown in her chest rather than she was like mm-hmm. filling out fat wise so I thought that too yeah oh so I took it the other way I because I, I, like the whole interaction is so like mean to each other mm. mm-hmm. I thought it was ick you are you're like your boobs have grown kind of thing and I was just like that is beyond just out of line for somebody to say brother friend Anybody, it's just too much. That was how I interpreted it. I hadn't interpreted it the other way, which is not uh, good. Not good either. Yeah. <laughs> the way I interpreted it was like, you know, when you're like insulting a girl in the 90s and the easiest, fun, most fun way to make fun of a girl is just call her fat because that's an insult back in the day. Yeah. Cause he like grabbed her belly a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's like the snippy, like, oh, yeah, you're getting fat. And like, she's like, oh, yeah, you're gross. Like, sort of like teasing back and forth which I thought was like not a, oh, your boobs are growing in, like sort of a gross compliment, quote unquote, but more of a like, oh, you're putting on weight in like a gross insult kind of way, which is also very bad. Man, these are both horrible. I thought that she was slapping (laughs) his hand away from her chest and that's why he only touched her stomach. Either way, either way. So bad. Not good. Uh, yeah, I th- I thought he was being like, ooh, like your your stomach is growing. That's also very bad. But all this being said, that's probably <laughs> the low point of the movie for Paul Rudd, which is yes. good news for the rest of the run. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Although that being his opening, like the second thing he says, I think, <laughs> is yeah. not good. I immediately yeah. hated his character, also knowing <laughs> that he was about... he. It's very obvious he's about to be the one that she falls in love with. And I hated that, too. All contributing to my feelings of ick about this movie. Yes. Yeah. So at dinner, Cher tells her dad that her teachers are trying to lowball her. And so her her report card's not ready because she has to negotiate, which he's very (laughs) impressed by. He's like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then we get a montage of her telling her teachers 
that she needs them to lower her grades, convincing them in various ways, like telling her gym teacher she got her heart broken and her gym teacher, who is obviously a lesbian, telling her that all men are terrible. (laughs) And um, Mr. Hall will not budge on her grades. And she is devastated. She feels impotent, quote unquote, and (laughs) needs to regain her strength. So she goes to the mall. And while she's at the mall, she and Dion hatch a plan because they have to make Mr. Hall sublimely happy. And then we see him like walking down an aisle of trees, which feels very Austin-esque. And her voiceover is talking about how she needs to get him a boink fest. Now, I like that her vocabulary goes from things like saying sublimely happy and brutally rebuffed to boink fest. (laughs) Well, my favorite thing about Cher is that she's using words like slightly incorrectly as well. Like sublimely happy is kind of a redundant. Like everything she says is a little bit redundant. Well, though, it's the I felt impotent. Like, (laughs) like, what do you mean, Cher? What do you mean? (laughs) Yeah, she just will learn later that she kind of picks out words and is like, let me use that in a sentence today, mm-hmm. which I can admire. And it does highlight how young she is. And I, what I like about this movie is that she actually reads as 15 and her behavior is actually that of a 15 year old, as opposed to some movies where they seem like full on adults. Um, they all may look like adults, but at least her behavior and the way she kind of just talks and holds herself is very something like a 15-year-old would do. Mm-hmm. Then we get her looking at the teachers in the teacher's lounge, trying to pick out someone for Mr. Hall. We are confirmed that, in fact, the PE teacher is gay. And they decide on Miss Geitzt, who is this kind of like frumpy little woman in the corner who spills her drink on herself and has lipstick on her teeth. And they write her a love letter which is a quote from Shakespeare. And Dion says, did you write that? And Cher says, duh, it's a famous quote. And uh, Dion's like, oh, from who? And she says, Cliff's Notes. (laughs) Iconic. Which I found particularly funny because I read the Emma Cliff Notes before watching the movie (laughs) just to refresh. And I was like, ah, yes, being called out for my high schooler ways of reading the Cliff Notes. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I also want to give shouts to Dion's Dr. Seuss hats, which this is the second one. It's like giant and red and has yellow spirals all over it. And it's phenomenal. We we cannot talk enough about the fashion choices made in this movie. The costuming is like a revelation. It is heightened, full 90s. It is like almost its own style, the clueless style. And like from the yellow plaid suit she wears to sophomore year of high school to Dion's hats to the fully exaggerated aesthetic of every boy on the campus to we'll get it to it later like her baby doll and empire waist dresses that are like homages to Emma Woodhouse herself like the costuming in this movie is just like one of the best jobs I can think of in an iconic movie I love it it is so good the costumes are amazing and you're right it's like an iconic style that is just the clueless style and there's a hard way to describe it any other way yeah we'll send this to you kelly but uh when we first started covering emma somehow it came up on the podcast the yellow plaid Mm. um and we had a bunch of our listeners draw us emma woodhouse wearing a yellow plaid empire dress 
and they are so good. Oh, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. So Miss Geist reads the card, the love letter, and she just lights up, which is very sweet. And then we see Mr. Hall giving the tardy roll call, um, reading out how many times everyone's been late. And Travis has had 38 tardies, and he's so excited <laughs> that he gets up and gives this speech, which I thought was so funny. Another moment from my brain that really stuck from childhood was like the part where he's like, and to the drive through window at McDonald's, because they take so long to make those tiny little egg McMuffins <laughs> without which I would never be tardy. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I don't recall the name of this actor, but he is in Rat Race and he is so good in this. He's so funny. He's also in Ghosts of Girlfriends Past because I thought he looked familiar and he's not really in. I've seen Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, but that's pretty much it. And he plays like the cheating brother in that. So fun little fact. I'm trying to figure out which movie I know him from. His name is Brecken Meyer. Oh, he's also in Josie and the Pussycats, if either of you guys watched that movie growing up. I've definitely seen it. I have not seen it. That is another... High aesthetic satire movie. And that one is aged like almost perfectly like fine wine. It is so good. So Cher has two tardies and she's like, I object. I was riding the crimson wave and I had to haul ass to the ladies. And he says, OK, I'm going to let that one go. <laughs> and, and Emma, Emma, I keep calling her Emma like in my notes, too. I would like she is Emma. Emma. <laughs> she is. And Cher says, Miss Geist was right about you. And he's like, oh, what'd she say? And she said, you were the only person with any intelligence at this school. And then he smiles and it's very sweet. Then we cut to Cher's dad calling her in to his office because she's got a second notice on some outstanding tickets. And one of my favorite parts is when she's like, I don't remember getting a first notice. And he was like, the ticket is the first notice. And I wanted to note that like here, it's not that she's a brat. Like I feel like a lot of times this stereotype can be played off as bratty and like wanting to get what you want and all this. But she really just doesn't understand, which we've said already, but she's just living in a world that doesn't exist. She's just like, oh, yeah, OK, I can have a licensed driver with me at all times. And then she goes to find Josh reading Nietzsche by the waterfall. <laughs> a licensed driver with nothing to do? Where would I find such a loser? <laughs> so she asks Josh to be her supervisor in the car and she, they're driving around and he's like, can you drop me off at my tree people meeting? Which is, I guess, college students planting trees. Yeah, I think this is a so back in the 90s. I don't know if colleges still do this. I don't think it was a big thing when we were in college, but like this was like being an environmentalist back in the day was like planting trees. Like <laughs> that was how you like saved the environment. Now we're all like protesting and like lobbying and trying to get like legislation done and obviously like recycling and composting those a lot of things. But I think planting trees as your form of environmentalism has gone a little out of style. But I think that's the implication here is like Josh is trying to save the environment. So he's like mm -hmm. in like a little environmental activism group that's planting trees. Maybe we should be planting more trees, though, because they help make oxygen. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a scientist, but I do believe planting trees is net good for the world. <laughs> so, yes, we should be planting more. There's a lot to do. <laughs> Bring it back. Yeah. I recently, because a lot of Christmas trees are popping up for sale on the sidewalks of New York, I recently was just talking to Mike about 
is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? We've created this industry for growing trees and they replace them because they need the future income as well. However, we're also cutting them down. So is it good? Is it bad? Then I started wondering, what is the tree collection system? Does the used tree at the end of the season go towards composting or go towards other things that might be environmentally friendly or do they end up in a landfill? Is it net good? Is it net bad? And I feel like I need to do more research now into the trees. But in a way, it's an industry created by planting trees. Yeah, that's super interesting. I've never thought about that. I don't know if it's net good or net bad. I did do a little research on this, not too much, but I did Google, which is better, um, fake tree or real tree for the environment a few years ago, Mm because I was like, I want to do whichever one of these is like not as bad. And according to the internet, and I'm happy to hear that I was wrong on this, according to the internet, it is better for the environment to have a real tree than a fake tree, because the fake tree is a bunch of plastic nonsense. And a real tree... They regrow it later. So, um, yeah. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's just that it's the time of year again where I get to talk about Spirited, the movie on Apple TV. <laughs> <laughs> there is an enti- the whole plot of the movie. Well, not the entire plot of the movie, but a lot of the plot of the movie revolves around the argument between the tr- tree growers and the plastic tree sellers. And there is an entire song where um what's his face Ryan Bradley Reynolds. Cooper Ryan Reynolds <laughs> makes them up all the time there's an entire song where Ryan Reynolds sings about why you should have a real tree versus a fake tree and like keep the tree industry alive um to a room of tree growers who all cheer at the end so watch spirited on apple tv <laughs> not sponsored i feel like i should watch this i also am devastated because A few years ago, I had this internal debate and I landed on the side without doing any research that I would get an artificial tree. And so I have have an artificial tree, but I think as long as I never throw it away or replace it with another one, and it's kind of small too. I bought it in like January on mega sale from Ikea. So I'm just going to assume that it was going to be thrown away by Ikea and I saved it. You saved the tree. And as long as I never throw it away, I'm never contributing any plastic to... I love that. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm yes. slightly devastated to learn this. Listen, I could be wrong, but I just, I Googled it because I was like, I want to do the better thing. But it makes I sense. Like it. <laughs> I mean, it, it is made out of plastic, but I'll just never throw it away. Now I have to find a second life for it if I'm ever done with it. Yeah, it's going to become a family heirloom. Exactly. <laughs> my, my $10 Ikea tree. <laughs> so tree people, we're all tree people. Cher is like, I contribute to society too. When I get my license, I'm going to break for animals and I'm helping two lonely teachers find love. I also donate many an old outfit to Lucy, which is great because Lucy's their maid and also like, Cher wears like thousands of dollars worth of clothes every day. And Lucy is played by a very small, like stocky woman. And Cher's like the opposite, like body type to her. So like, well, what use is that going to be? I really hope that Lucy sells those clothes and she's actually rolling in it. And she's just like, all right, yeah, I'll clean your house in, the, in my free time. <laughs> she has a thriving consignment store on the side. <laughs> yes. Love it. So um, Paul Rudd says that she's probably getting a lot more out of this matchmaking than the teachers are. And if she ever did something that wasn't 90% selfish, he would die of shock. 
And we can see that this really gets to Cher because at lunch the next day, she asks Dion if she thinks that she's selfish. Um, and Dion's like, well, yeah, maybe a little bit. She says, no, not to your face. <laughs> yeah, not to your face. Then they accost Miss Geist in the teacher's lounge and take her glasses off and <laughs> fix her hair to make her more appealing to Mr. Hall. And Miss Geist is very frazzled by this. And then we see Cher complaining about all the food she's eaten that day, which was another moment where I was like, <clears throat> but that's what she's doing when they see Miss Geist and Mr. Hall sitting on a bench together. Did I skip the coffee? I skipped the coffee. They've given Mr. Hall a thing of coffee and said he should share it with Miss Geist. So that is what the matchmaking here is. They see him <laughs> on a bench, him giving her the coffee and sitting very close together. Then everyone's grades improve. And this is one moment where Elton like keeps hugging Cher. He's like, yeah, you did it. Our grades are improving. And I was like, get off her. Every minute on, she's like on her back. It's like, yeah, it's ugh. Yeah. Everyone in, in the courtyard applauds Cher as the uh, matchmaker here as she sips Diet Coke with a straw and is wearing the most magnificent red plaid coat and skirt set that I want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This outfit is so good. And especially just with the Diet Coke. She looks like a Diet Coke ad. <laughs> she comes home with her new uh, report card, which I only got one report card. I guess it's semesters, but I would only get one per like chunk of school. So I do think it's odd that they've gotten so many report cards. I think the implication is that Cher went back and argued. Oh, this is her new teachers. report card. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, you can see that it's written over the old oh, grades. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Okay. So her dad's like, what's this? And she's like, well, that's my report card. And he is so shocked that she was able to argue her way from a C <laughs> to an A that he's so happy. He, he couldn't even be happier if they were real grades. <laughs> because he's a litigator, which means someone who argues. A, a litigator is literally just a lawyer who, like, deals with like the court system in some regard like there's transactional lawyers who like do like contracts and like real estate deals and stuff like that and then a litigator is a lawyer who like deals with lawsuits or criminal trials like that's literally all it means gotcha so when she says that I it's actually so first of all this movie is hilarious hilarious parody of lawyers um second of all her saying daddy's a lit litigator those are the scariest kinds of lawyers is another fantastic example of Cher taking a word that she doesn't know what it means and being like daddy's a litigator <laughs> like, it means nothing yeah so then we go to gym class and when it's Cher's turn she gives this like speech on how PE in their school is a joke and I wanted to note that they are they're not in school uniforms, but they are all wearing various forms of black and white athleisure. Can we even call it athleisure? They're all just they're in some sort of like motif. It's hard to explain, but there's no leggings or sports bras. It's just it's camp. <laughs> it's perfect. I think Sherry's shorts are technically like some sort of spandex athletic material. But it certainly doesn't look like that. She just looks super fashionable. Yeah. Yeah. She's like wearing a, a T-shirt and then a tank top, like a cropped mm -hmm. tank top over it. When Amber is called up, she says that her plastic surgeon doesn't want her doing any activities where balls fly at her face. And Dion's like, there goes your social life, <laughs> which is 
phenomenal. <laughs> oh my god! And also hints to the fact that we don't like Amber, and we'll find out why later. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is that she is Mrs. Elton. Yes, but I didn't realize that at this point. I thought she was one of their friends. Oh no, she's the worst. But it makes sense because her outfits are all so unhinged, just like a little bit too over the top, which is very much yep. like Mrs. Elton being gaudy and. And wasn't her hair the one that was styled into like almost like Pippi Longstocking? Yeah, Pippi Longstocking, like wired braids or something. Yes. I saw that and I was just like, is are we going into a Dr. Seuss motif now? <laughs> what is happening? Amber is bringing Dr. Seuss chic to Beverly Hills High. <laughs> She's like an Oompa Loompa, <laughs> but like a tall one. Of all the costumes in this a whole movie. I think Amber's tell most of the story. Like, I mean, obviously shares are iconic, but like you learn so much about Amber from how she's like trying to capture that heightened aesthetic that Dion and Cher are doing and just doing a bad job of it. And it's like hard to explain, but Dion and Cher look iconic and Amber does not. Yeah. Yes. So then someone, maybe the principal, brings in a new student, Ty Frazier, played by a baby, Brittany Murphy, may she rest in peace. And she's got dyed red hair and a graphic tee and baggy jeans and a flannel. And my first thought was, oh my God, she's just a little stoner, which I think is so fun for the Harriet character to be like, she's cool in her own way. She absolutely is. And as they say, she is so adorably clueless. But is that the first clueless of the movie? I think so. Yeah, I think so. They say it a lot. They do. They really do. So Cher decides to take Ty under her wing. And one thing that I wanted to note was that at first Dion's like, I don't want to. And Ty is like, don't you want to use your popularity for a good cause? Which is exactly what Josh said to her when they were in the car. So Ty says she's freaking out and could use some herbal refreshment. And they don't. It just kind of goes over her head and they're like oh well we don't have any tea but we have coke and ty is like no shit you got coke here and Cher is like yeah this is america this is a joke that went over my head when i was a little kid i think all of the drug-based humor went over my head i think all of the drug and sex-based humor went over my head as a kid so which is maybe why i didn't find it so funny then (laughs) because i was just like what are they talking about i was like wow they really didn't have coca-cola where ty went to school (laughs) that's so funny so at lunch ty meets travis in line for food and he compliments her drawings she compliments his skateboard and he's like oh i want to do marvin the martian right in the middle and she's like i can do marvin the martian and she shows him and he goes wow you didn't trace this which i thought was just really pure This immediately, like, reveals Travis as our Robert Martin character, our little farmer Mm -hmm. for Harriet. And I just think these two have really sweet chemistry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She goes to tell Cher and Dion about him. And she's like, right away, he offered me some smoke. And Cher is like, okay, how old are you? And Ty's like, I'm going to be 16 in May. And Cher says, well, I'm going to be 16 in April. And I'm older than you. Can I give you some advice? And she (laughs) does. Which I thought was iconic because that's exactly what you would do when you're 15 going on 16. It's like, well, I'm I'm two weeks older than you, so I'm pretty wise. And she tells her that she can do drugs and stuff at parties, but she can't go around being high all day. That's not respectable. And they decide they have to do a makeover on Ty. And we get this makeover montage where they take the red out of Ty's hair 
and they do her makeup and they curl her hair using a Coke can, which I didn't notice the first time I watched, but there's just a Coke can on top of her head. And uh, then we have see Sharon Ty working out uh, as part of her reformation. And Ty says, my buns, they don't feel nothing like steel. <laughs> and Cher sits her down and she's like, listen, we need to improve your accent and vocabulary. Pick out a word. Try to use it in a sentence. And then Josh comes in and Cher calls him the dreaded ex, which is just not what you call your ex stepbrother. <laughs> so weird. It's just- it's so weird. Molly paused the movie when we were watching it and just went, did they date already? <laughs> right. Like, at least they the dreaded ex-stepbrother, like, finish the sentence. In my delusional brain, what <laughs> I am assuming she's doing here is she's subtly staking her claim to Ty by mm. leaving it ambiguous. That's mm. what I'm going to assume. I think it's just weird wording, though. But <laughs> I also like to think it's a subconscious... I'm going to leave this open-ended so she doesn't go after my man. That's interesting because she does kind of always know that she's in love with him in, the, in her heart of hearts, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work to deter tie, but we'll get there for sure. <laughs> so Cher follows Josh into the kitchen while he's making a sandwich. and The she... ugliest sandwich I've ever seen in my life, by yes. the way. One piece of turkey, a little mayo slapped together. <laughs> On Wonder Bread. It is, it is bleak. Yeah. And she says, aren't you impressed with what I'm doing here? I'm doing something good for the world. And he's like, you never had a mother, so you're acting out and trying to mother tie, <laughs> which I thought was harsh. Um, way harsh, even. Molly just bugged her eyes, but we're not there yet, Molly. We're not there. So sorry. So sorry. So they go back into the living room, and this is my potentially my favorite part, but I've said that a lot. <laughs> Ty is sitting on the couch singing along to the Mentos theme song. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> it's so pure. I really relate to Ty and I really relate to Harriet Smith. And this is exactly how like you're sitting alone in this house that of your rich friend. And you're watching the Mentos theme song and you're like, fresh goes better with Mentos. So fresh and whatever. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Mentos better. Mentos fresher. Fresh goes better. <laughs> yeah, not paying for it. <laughs> they use a lot of opportunities to showcase her really good singing voice, too, which I was wondering, if, is this just another opportunity to show that she can sing? Because she really can. She really can, especially when she says, roll in with the homies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think part of it might be that this is, uh, I believe, introducing Brittany Murphy as an actor. This might be her first movie. Mm. Um, So they might just be like, yeah, look at this dynamic new performer we found. Mm-hmm. One could also read it as another way in which Ty was cool before Cher. Yes, Ty is cool before Cher. I also, at this point, sorry, slightly off track, but at this point, I kind of started feeling like this was just a different version of Mean Girls, where it's rich, superficial girl takes new girl under her wing, who new girl is already cool in her own way, turns her into something else, drama ensues, and then they go back to being themselves at its heart i feel like it is if mean girls was nice girls with good intentions but doing it wrong mm-hmm. but i just felt like mean girls maybe was a modern adaptation of clueless which is an adaptation of emma yeah i would say that that's accurate and actually because i was down a rabbit hole today looking at the mean girls posts um for the new adaptation or the new movie version of the musical. So it's a movie based on a musical based on a movie, which is based on a book. But (laughs) there were comments where people were like, 
talking about Clueless, like some people not realizing that this was different than Clueless, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Well, I recall at a certain point recording, you were like, are you sure Mean Girls isn't an adaptation of uh, Emma when we were reading the book? And I was like, hmm, there are similarities. It, it's one of those Jane Austen moments where it's kind of comforting to know that like there has always been. First of all, there's always been female friendship, TM, but there's also always been this dynamic of like a mean girl who's higher up befriending a girl who's lower status than her to try to sort of build her in her image and then it becoming a bad circumstance and creating a monster. Like, I guess that's something that was happening hundreds of years ago. And that's, I guess, why Jane Austen persists today, mm -hmm. like, yeah, as a as a cultural icon. She she knew what people were doing. Totally. So the next day, Ty is wearing a very Cher-esque outfit and everyone's staring at her as they walk into school. And Cher and Dion are like, oh, my God, yes, we have succeeded in making her hot. <laughs> and Travis comes up and gives Ty a flyer for a party. And Cher's like, well, that's that's in the valley. It's going to get busted within an hour. And Ty says, do you think Travis will be there? As if he didn't just give her the flyer for the party. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> I thought it was so cute. And they tell her that she can do better than Travis because she has something no one else has. And Ty is like, oh, I'm not a virgin. And they're like, no, mystery. You're new. You could be the coolest girl at your school for all they know, which I think she might have been. Then they suggest that she try to go after Elton because he just went through a breakup. And... We start to see Cher trying to push Elton and Ty together. She's like doing a photo shoot of all of the friends. And this is where we get Amber's pippy long stocking hair, which I despised. <laughs> and we have Cher taking a picture of Ty with a rose. And Elton comes over and is like, can I get a print out of that? Which would lead me to believe that he wants a picture of Ty. Like, that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. Very misleading of him, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. He sucks. Yeah, he really does. He's the worst. <laughs> I, I do think he's a perfect Elton, though, because he's like the actor is really handsome and it takes like someone as odious as the character of Elton to make an actor who is handsome come off really gross. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's the talent of playing Mr. Elton. Well, there are a lot of really gross, handsome men out there. Yes. And that's the lesson all women should learn. Yes. <laughs> so at dinner, Ty is over and Cher introduces tied to her dad and the first thing he says to her is get out of my chair i actually love the dad that's wonderful <laughs> me too he's fantastic so kelly i don't know if you recall this from watching emma adaptations but mr woodhouse in emma is like a doddery old man who's like anxious about being sick all the time i do not remember that yeah so this is this is fantastic so like one of the like through lines of both Clueless and Emma is that Cher is taking care of her father mm -hmm. and Emma's taking care of her father. But in the book, it's that Emma is the mistress of the house uh, where in, of her father's home. And her father doesn't want her to leave or get married because he's kind of like this massive hypochondriac who's also an anxious king who never wants to leave his house and is always very, very concerned that someone's going to catch a draft. And so to change him into this like furious litigator that she still has <laughs> to take care of is such an iconic twist of the story. <laughs> I do love it. And I think it shows how, you know, quote unquote, clueless she is. Because 
if he was my dad, I would be fighting with him all the time. Like I would just I would be afraid of him a little bit. I would be like fighting with him. And she just kind of was like, okay, daddy, everything's okay. <laughs> She's so sweet and he's so gruff. I love that difference between them it's so funny because she's like hi daddy this is ty my new friend from school get out of my chair <laughs> so <laughs> it's so good and he's like what did you do today she says i broke in my new clogs <laughs> and then as they're sitting at the table Cher gets a call and her dad's like no phones at the table we're having dinner as a family and then he gets a call and he goes no yeah he takes the call and then of course as he's on the phone she gets to call Dion and we learn that Elton has the picture of Ty up in his locker and everyone's going to the party in the valley so I guess they have to go too. Then we get them driving to the party and Murray (laughs) is trying to get Dion to read a map and they're just having this back and forth that's so funny. He's like look at the what are the numbers on the top stage? She's like there's no numbers there's letters and he just like screams into the (laughs) void. And they get to the party And Amber is wearing the same dress that Cher was wearing yesterday. She's been shopping at the Lucy consignment store is what that means. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But Amber says, as if I would ever shop at the same places that you shop. And I thought that that was interesting that she chose to use Cher's signature line against her. Then Travis spills beer on Cher's satin shoes and Cher is livid. And Travis offers her some weed to make it up. And she's like, fine, it's the least you could do. My absolute heart, though, for Travis, this entire party, just as of like setting the story, like you can feel how sweet this character is. Mm -hmm. And you can also feel how much Cher is doing the mean girl thing to him where she he's like in the group, but he's not in the group with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh I I have like a real soft spot in my heart for Travis Birkenstock as a character. (laughs) Me too. And I mean, I have a soft spot in my heart for Robert Martin as well. So it really works. They start playing Suck and Blow, which is that game that one might play in middle school with a a little piece of paper and you suck on it to make it stay aloft and then blow to push it to the next person's mouth. And uh, it's supposed to be funny if the paper falls and you kiss someone. It's a very gross game. Made even grosser by the fact that Elton intentionally drops the paper and attacks Cher's face with his face. And she yells, God, Elton, can't you suck? Which I thought was (laughs) apt because he does suck. (laughs) Then they hear Dion screaming. And so they run to go see what's happened. And we get a beautiful close-up on Murray's braces before we see that he's shaving his head. And His comedic timing, even, I don't know how old he was in this movie, but he's so funny. Like, she's yelling at him, and he's like, I'm keeping it real. I'm I'm keeping it real. And I just think it's so funny. This is also such a teenage boy thing to do, to think it's, like, an iconic idea to sneak into a bathroom during a party and just shave your head. (laughs) Yeah. And my favorite part is when Dion goes, and with yearbook pictures coming up, what am I going to tell my grandchildren? She is so overdramatic, and I love it for her. She threatens to call his mom and then locks herself in the bathroom. And Cher and Ty are like, okay, let's get out of here. And they go to bump into people, quote unquote. And Ty bumps into Travis. And Cher's like, no, 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 come with me. And then Cher and Ty share a very charged dance, (laughs) like charged between the two of them. (laughs) Cher 
goes down on one knee and holds up her hand and Ty like very sultry walks in a circle around her and I'm like a little bit gay just a not to not to spoil for later in the movie but you finally got actual gay people in a Jane Austen adaptation finally <laughs> huh. yes <laughs> she's been waiting I've been waiting <laughs> I honestly, I need to finish watching the movie. As soon as we're done recording, I'm going to go finish watching. I mean, I have seen it before, obviously, but I was I was rewatching it. And I was like, you know, I'm going to stop here where we're yeah. stopping for the episode and then I'll keep going. So actually, I don't remember the characters you're talking about. Yeah, I won't tell oh, you. You're going to have fun with it then. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm also going to go finish watching it as soon as we get off because I was like, I'm going to keep it fresh just the first half so I won't go too far off the deep end what happens later. So Cher and Ty share a very sexually charged dance between the two of them. But then a shoe hits Ty in the head and she (laughs) is potentially concussed. And so Elton and Travis both come over to help her. But Cher shoes Travis away and she's like, Ty would have wanted you to enjoy the party like as if she's dead. (laughs) Poor guy. Um, He goes away and Cher tells Elton to ask her questions. And he's like, "Um, what's seven times seven? And Cher goes, stuff she knows. (laughs) And then um, Ty and Travis have this little moment where he's like, can you do this? Rolling with the homies. And she goes, rolling with the homies. And they go to dance together. And Cher goes outside and she's like, love is everywhere. Someone's throwing up in the pool. But she's like, I'm so happy for Ty. It's a very graphic throw up in the pool moment. I remember that from like childhood. It's so bad. Yeah. I hate watching people throw up. It makes me want to throw up. So um it was, I closed my eyes. Um, also, nobody ever talks about the helicopter that's just flying overhead during this whole scene. I thought that meant the party was about to get busted, which it didn't. Right. Yeah. It's just flying overhead for the heck of it. I Maybe it's a valley reference that we as East Coasters don't understand. Maybe. I don't know. It was odd. Then um, her dad calls and he's like, you got to get home. Uh, what are you doing? And so she brings Ty to leave and they run into Summer who is also leaving and Elton who is leaving. Her dad on the phone says everywhere in LA takes 20 minutes. That's not true at this point in time either, right? It can't be. Everywhere in LA takes like an hour at least is what I always imagined. But he just says, she says, oh, I think it'll take me a little longer than 20 minutes, daddy. He says, everywhere in LA is 20 minutes away. And I was like, that's not true. Right. Like, isn't LA famous for its traffic? Yes. Right. I'm like, everywhere in New York is maybe 20 minutes away, even then, maybe 30 minutes away. But in LA, I'm pretty sure it's one to two hours to get anywhere from my experience. Yeah. But I'm also uh, in New York, everything takes me an hour because I I cannot for the life of me get the trains right. Oh, no. <laughs> Molly, you've lived here for years. Oh, yeah. But still, like, I mean, it's not it's not because I don't know how to do the trains. It's because I leave for work. Uh, without checking when the trains are coming and I will inevitably mm. get there just as it's pulling away and I live off the B, which is terrible. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes like every 15 to 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I got you. But that's a personal problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, listeners from L.A., let us know if you were going to rewrite the slide from Mr. Horowitz and say everywhere in L.A. takes blank minutes I want your actual calculation of how long it takes to get anywhere in L.A., not from the valley, just in L.A. Yeah. Okay. thank you. So they get outside. Summer and Elton are both driving home and Elton and Cher have this fight about who's going to drive home with who. And he's like, 
manhandling her and is like, no, she's going to go with Summer. You're going to come with me. And they're like pushing back and forth and it's disgusting. Mm -hmm. They get in the car. Cher loses the battle, obviously, and she's in the car with Elton. This is the famous Mr. Elton terrible proposal scene in Emma. In this, it is him parking in an empty lot and like attacking her physically, which earns him a really big as if. Yes. Yes. Um, I will say two things about this scene. One, that are not related to the fact that it's disgusting, which it is. One, it's an almost perfect adaptation of what happens in the book, except in the book, it's like the Regency. So there's like better social norms that were like protecting her in that moment that are not protecting her here. But it is like a very book accurate scene for mm-hmm. that reason. Two, and one moment he was like, she's like, you had the picture of Ty in your locker. And he goes, I had the picture you took in my locker. And Cher just goes, oh, I'm having one of those Twin Peaks moments. And Mike, who's a huge fan of Twin Peaks, just turned around and went, oh. My fiance, Mike, not your husband, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When that happened, we were all watching it together. And as she said that, like me, Becca and Sequoia all whipped our heads towards Mike and he looked, he whipped his head towards us. And we're like, it's your thing. And he's like, it's Twin Peaks. It's the 90s. <laughs> he was very excited about that. Yes, he was. After the disgusting interaction, he leaves her in this parking lot. And she tries to call a cab and gets robbed at gunpoint, which is way more dramatic than I was expecting this to get. She gets down on the ground. She does the whole thing. He asks her to count to 100 and she counts to three and then gets up, which I was like, girl, you need to let him get farther away. But we need to talk about the fact that he asked her to get on the ground and she goes, oh, no, this isn't a liar. <laughs> Basically, I looked up at Alaya as a brand of dress. My guess is that that dress like rang her up like thirty eight hundred dollars. So in nineties money too. <laughs> well, that was what today's money was. Ah, when I looked I up Alaya dresses. So maybe it was more like two thousand dollars. It's been a while, you know. Mm-hmm. But I have not adjusted for inflation. But it is a, it is an expensive dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very cute dress. I actually really liked that outfit as well. Me too. It was a very nice dress. We forgot to mention that the party was a Christmas party, so you got your Christmas movie. Oh, you're right. It is a Christmas. This is a Christmas movie now. Yeah. It's a Christmas yes. movie. Yeah. Yes. And it, it's very festive. It is. <laughs> so she uses the payphone to call Josh, um, which her she just gave him all her money. So I don't know how she had money for the payphone, but she did. She calls Josh. He's having a little makeout sesh, but she like cries into the phone. She's like, can you come pick me up? And it, again, highlights how young she is, and it really feels like she is a high schooler, and she just got herself in over her head. The girlfriend that Josh was with comes with him to pick her up, and in the car, she's, like, whining about something intellectual, and she says, it's just like Hamlet said, to thine own self be true. And Cher is like, there's no way Hamlet said that. And the girl's like, well, I remember Shakespeare accurately, and Cher says, I remember Mel Gibson accurately, and he didn't say that. (laughs) That Polonius guy did, which I thought was a." Excellent serve on Cher's part. So funny. Josh loves this as well. He does a little smirk in the rearview mirror, which is uh, (laughs) cute, I guess. Um, (laughs) But Cher is devastated by this whole ordeal. She doesn't know what to say to Ty. Even her masseuse says she's tense. And when they tell Ty, she is absolutely devastated. And Cher's like, listen, let's go to the mall. We'll go to the mall. We'll objectify men. And so they do. (laughs) Um, They're like watching people walk past and saying, okay, like, 
what's the verdict on this guy? Is he doable? And Ty says she doesn't care what men look like as long as their you-know-what isn't crooked. And she holds up this pretzel or like pizza crust that's shaped like a crooked penis. And this is where we learn that Cher is quote-unquote hymenally challenged or saving herself for the right guy. And Dion is technically a virgin. And so Ty is like, what? (laughs) You guys are all virgins here in this California? Then Ty and Elton's song comes on and she starts crying. Her, their song, of course, being yeah. Rolling with the Homies. Before we get there, um, I do want to just highlight the scene as well because it, I think it's another good example of the Emma will never marry trope mm-hmm. in Clueless adaptation. And the line where she says, I'm just not ready until I've met the right person. So you've seen how picky I am about my shoes and they only go on my feet. Iconic. I actually think that is an incredibly great argument to make to young women. Yeah. It brings it down to a level that a high schooler could understand. It is a very poignant argument as well. Yeah. And I think I think it captures the same energy of Emma in her time period being like, I will never marry because I don't have to. I have my own wealth. I don't need to. And I think Cher just being like, yeah, I know my value and I don't have to settle for a guy who I think will be wrong for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's an icon. Uh, she's an icon. She's a legend and she's hymenally challenged. Yeah. <laughs> Cher decides that she needs to find someone to take Elton's place in Ty's life. And that is the first half of this movie. We did it. Ooh. Woo. Yes. So much, so much to say about like 45 minutes of a film, but what a thrill to do so. And uh, that brings us to Becca's study questions. First one, funniest quote or uh, favorite line delivery. Kelly, you want to kick us off? One of my favorite deliveries is actually all the way back at the beginning when she's having her debate about her dinner party analogy to the Haitians, which I think is just the funniest delivery with the with the gum on the finger and then she pops it back in and then it was his 50th birthday is just the best. I think it's so funny. It's it's just a hilarious opener. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I have a top three and they're all for different characters. One is Josh going, hey, James Bond in America, we drive on the right side of the road. <laughs> Uh, number two is Dion and Murray in the shaving scene when she goes, all right, that's it. And he's imitating her and she goes, you want to play games? I'm calling your mother. A very good one. And then number three is also from the party when Cher is like walking by the girl throwing up and goes, I had to give myself snaps for all the good deeds I was doing. <laughs> yeah, give yourself snaps, girl. <laughs> okay, I'll narrow it down to two. This is Dion saying after they decide to give her a uh, tie a makeover Dion says Cher's main thrill in life is a makeover okay it gives her a sense of control in a world of chaos <laughs> it just like it hit out of nowhere and then Ty saying shit you guys I've never had straight friends before <laughs> I just love it yeah and I also just one more time have to shout it out even though we've said it before oh no this is an Alaya. It's like a totally important designer. <laughs> so many good ones. An eminently quotable movie. Yes. All right. Uh, notable changes from Emma to Clueless. I think the biggest one has to be that they're step siblings. That actually was the only one that I knew. And so <laughs> that was going to be my biggest difference. So I was like, I don't know. Maybe there's other bigger ones. I feel like that is a huge difference. Yeah, no, it's pretty book accurate otherwise, but I mean, there's obviously 
it's in a different era. But Mm -hmm. in terms of changes to the plot in this half, that's the biggest one. There's a pretty major one in the next half that uh, I won't spoil for you, Kelly, but (laughs) this is a big one. Yeah. Um, I will give it to sort of the a couple things. One, um, as I said, Mr. Woodhouse being a vicious litigator, a scary kind of lawyer (laughs) instead of a feeble old man who inherited his wealth. And two, there's like a swapping around of different character traits for different characters. Like, for example, you have Dion as Cher's best friend which you could say is Mrs. Weston, but also could go to Mrs. Geist, who's the older lady she's setting up. Mm -hmm. But I think that also Dion and Murray really are emblematic more of John and Isabella and shares Emma's not as close to her sister as she is to Mrs. Weston in the book. So there's just like some swapping around of character traits um, that gets a little fuzzy, but I think it works to make Cher have a teenage best friend and an older lady that she's setting up separate from everything else going on totally least favorite part of this adaptation mine is the you're really filling out bit that paul rudd does <laughs> whichever interpretation they were going for they both suck <laughs> they both really suck i think for this half of the movie it's just there was a lot of fat shaming and casual ableism and stuff that i didn't like that didn't age well and yeah that's my least favorite mm-hmm. yeah i'm gonna give it to the tina turner joke it's pretty dark um and that's not a funny thing to joke about um, because basically like Cher compares Dion and Murray to Ike and Tina Turner. And that is not uh, not a fun comparison to make but for any relationship. I will also give it to multiple uses of the R word mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. heavily used in the 90s. Not so used now for good reasons. Mm-hmm. All right. Best part of the movie so far. My broad, broad answer is that the best part is all of Cher's voiceovers. I think that her inner monologue and her commentary are so funny and witty, out of touch, but really genuine. And I think it's the saving grace of this movie and what has made it still a fun movie to watch today. Like we said, there's so many things that haven't aged well about it. This is something that a lot of her commentary and voiceovers really just are still hilarious and still very fun to watch. Absolutely. Um, I think that my favorite part would be sort of the the switcheroo that happens and the fact that Cher being the popular girl is kind of actually pretty straight-laced and doesn't, you know, do a lot of drugs, Does is a virgin, um, and Ty is a stoner and kind of like a party girl. I really like that. Also, honorable mention to Wallace Shawn mm. and Mr. Hall. Yes. Incredible. Yeah. uh, Oh, God. Everything is so good about like everything that's good about this movie is so good. I will say the best part of this movie for me, and I think it kind of ties in with Kelly's this really Alicia Silverstone's performance of Cher. I think it is one of these like iconic film performances. She is so quotable, so memorable, incredibly charming and also so cringy at the same time. It is a dynamic performance it is a complex performance she is the moment like oh I can't think of another performance in like a movie I watched growing up that was so pitch perfect for the aesthetic and the vibe of the movie that was happening anyway yeah yeah and who wins the who wins the movie 
costume designer. The costume designer. I was say the same thing. Whoever did Cher's outfits, so good. It's so good. Yeah, yeah we are agreed. It's a perfect, perfect costume design. It tells you every single thing about every single character at every single moment. And even though it's a time capsule, I think it was a trend-setting movie in its own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. All right. So, listeners, this concludes the first half of Clueless. Kelly, thank you so much for joining. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Slash, do you have anything you want to plug? Um. Oh, man. I don't even um, remember what some of my social media handles are. <laughs> what are they? Who am I? What do I do? Yes, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at vote for me, Kelly B. I'm on there, obviously, very sporadically, as uh, Cher might say. <laughs> nice use of the word. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but every now and then, also sporadically, you'll find me on the newest Olympian, Mike's podcast, or on Potterless, Mike's podcast. Mike always likes for me to plug that I have a um, Etsy store where I make BTS-inspired merch called Magic Shop Patches. So you can check that out or find me there. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, uh, listeners, next time you can watch the second half of this movie, Clueless. And we are just having a good time discussing uh, what I think is the probably the most famous Jane Austen adaptation that no one knows is a Jane Austen adaptation. I think that's probably the way to put it. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. I had a lot of fun. Um, I had a lot of fun talking about Clueless slash Jane Austen. Oh, <laughs> us too. Yeah. That's I mean, talking about Jane Austen is just inherently fun for us. So that's why we had a <laughs> podcast about it. So until next time, stay proper and go plant a tree. Do it. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Potted Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.